The book of Revelation is probably the most exciting book in all of scripture. In the Come Follow Me for 2023, we study the New Testament. Think of this. The whole New Testament leads up to the book of Revelation. I'm Sam Bracken, your host, and our teacher is Dr. Breck England, who has studied the book of Revelation through the lens of the temple. We are now in Revelation chapter 4. Breck, in the last episode, we were in the heavenly temple, about to witness a ceremony of some kind. We are about to see a betrothal ceremony, an engagement ceremony, if you will, between a bridegroom and a bride. Now, as we describe this ceremony, I want you to keep in mind that God always speaks of his relationship with Israel in terms of a marriage, like in Hosea chapter 2. He promises the house of Israel, quote, I will betroth thee, the house of Israel, unto me forever. So the marriage metaphor testifies of the great love the Savior has for all of us. But it's also a reminder that without marriage, there is no covenant, there is no exaltation. Now, in Israel, marriage took place, and and it still does for many Orthodox Jews, marriage took place in two stages, which could be separated by months or even years. You remember, for example, that uh, Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Right, right. But not quite married to him. Do you remember that? Right, Okay. The first stage of a marriage is called the betrothal ceremony. Uh, In Hebrew, they call it the shiduchin, which consecrated the bride and groom to each other. That's a very important word. They were made sacred to each other. Mm. The couple were regarded as married, but without the rights of marriage. So it's sort of like a conditional marriage. Okay, And you could face serious consequences for breaking that agreement because it was entered into by a sacred oath and covenant. A non-LDS scholar named uh, Gordon Hugenberger says that among the Jews, quote, for marriage to constitute a covenant, it must be accompanied by a ratifying oath and or an oath sign, such as the uplifted hand, which expresses an appeal to God to act as a witness, unquote. Isn't that cool? Very cool. So getting engaged was a serious matter in ancient Israel. Not like today, when you get engaged and break it off. It it was a legal contract, as well as a sacred covenant. And you didn't break a legal contract or a sacred covenant. If you were wise, right? Yeah, right. Okay, now to start the process, the groom and his father go to the bride's house and they knock on the door. The bride's father opens the door. Nobody else. Mm. Um, They share a meal and they discuss the terms of betrothal. In Revelation 3.20, the Lord says, quote, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him, and he with me, unquote. Now, ancient readers would have recognized this knocking on the door as the first step in an engagement. Oh, wow. So the two families sup together, and if the bride is agreeable, they write up a covenant called a ketubah. Now, that's a word I want you to remember, because it's ketubah. very... Ketubah. Ketubah. It's very important 
sometimes it's pronounced ketuva. Ketuva. It's a Hebrew word that means uh, something like the writing. Mm. Okay. Um, but it meant the contract, the, the legal agreement. Anciently, the ketuva was written on a parchment scroll. The ketuva spells out the groom's promises to the bride, and then seven witnesses sign and seal it. Wow. Okay? The bride and groom, their parents, and the scribe, and two unrelated witnesses. The ketuva is then opened and read at a family meeting, and ratified. This is the council in heaven. Mm -hmm. As we see in the council in heaven, in Revelation chapters 5 through 8, the Father holds up the ketuvah for everyone to see. John says, quote, I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one seated on the throne. That's the Father, right? Mm -hmm. It had writing on both sides and was sealed with seven seals. That is a ketuvah. Tuva. So the, the, the book with seven seals was a marriage contract. Most likely, I think. Mm. Um, in antiquity, many legal documents were, were written on scrolls and then rolled up and sealed to prevent tampering. These would include wills and deeds, and especially marriage contracts. There are many theories about the sealed scroll in Revelation. Some think it's the Old Testament, and some think it symbolizes the book of Revelation itself. And other people think it's an account of a future final tribulation. Some evangelical Christians say that the scroll is, quote, the title deed to planet Earth, close quote, which is then given to Jesus and he mm. becomes Lord of the Earth. Okay. By this theory, the scroll is a legal document that grants Jesus lordship over the world, annulling Satan's counterfeit claim to being the god of this world. Mm. So that's a pretty good theory. All those theories are interesting. But I think the sealed book is a ketuah, a marriage contract. Now, like any contract, the sealed scroll in Revelation promises benefits to the parties, right? As well as consequences for breaking the covenant. In the scriptures, the Lord's covenant is generally likened to a marriage covenant or contract, which is Quote, this is um, from uh, Laura Levitt, who is a, a well-known non-LDS scholar. She's written an article called Covenant or Contract. She said, the, the, the ketuvah is the chief analogy to the oneness of the relationship between God and Israel. So it's, it talks about that unity between God and Israel. So I agree with the scholars who conclude that the scroll in Revelation is a ketuvah. It is associated with the nuptial relationships of the Lamb. That's another scholar, a man named Massimo Ford, who is a well-known uh, New Testament scholar. He says, the ketuvah, the, the sealed scroll in Revelation is, <clears throat> quote, associated with the nuptial relationships of the Lamb. So I'm not the only one who thinks mm -hmm. that the ketuvah, <clears throat> or that the uh, sealed scroll is a ketuvah. Right. Many scholars agree with that. And of course, the Lamb is Jesus Christ. Uh, ketuvah is a very old custom among the Jews. They've actually found ancient copies of ketuvah. Second century BC, 200 years before Christ, wow. a, a woman named Babata had a ketuvah and she 
had it sealed with seven seals and the signatures, and they found it intact in one of the Dead Sea caves. Mm-hmm. Okay? So investigators, they've found hundreds of these ketubat in the ancient library in Cairo called the Geniza, which is a library of ancient Jewish documents. And even today, many Jewish newlyweds will write up a ketubah and, and display it on the walls of their homes. Wow. It's sort of like a family contract. Uh, the ketubah represents not only the founding of a family, but also the creation of a new world. Because every, in, in Jewish lore, every family is a new world. Oh, every wow. new family is a new world. Wow. And, and thus, the ketubah has cosmological significance. And one of the interesting things about the ketubahs that you see even today are that the signs of the zodiac illustrate the ketubah. So that's an interesting connection back to what we talked about before, the signs of the zodiac. So what is written actually in a ketubah? Well, it contains a set of promises that the bride and groom make to each other. For example, the ketubah requires the groom to give the bride sort of a dowry, a monetary settlement called a moha. The moha insures the bride against divorce or the death of the husband. It's sort of like a, an insurance policy mm-hmm. for the bride because obviously in, in, in those days, women were second-class citizens and they didn't have much uh, of their own. So if the husband dies or leaves her, she has nothing unless he gives her a, a promise. Okay, mm-hmm. so he... He promises to take care of her. Whether he leaves her or he dies, she will be taken care of. Mm -hmm. Also, the ketubah obliges the groom to pledge all that he owns as security for the bride. In other words, he consecrates himself and all he possesses completely to her. Well, that sounds like a, a lot like a temple covenant. Yes, the mohar is the token of a covenant of consecration in marriage. Mm. But the mohar is even more than that. Jewish law says that the groom must redeem his wife from captivity, which is not just the case of actual captivity, like if she's kidnapped or something, Mm -hmm. but it embraces all circumstances. This is a quotation. Embraces all circumstances in which she is prevented from living with her husband where husband and wife are separated involuntarily, or they cannot reach the promised land together. That's mm. the language. Um, the mohar ensures that they reach the promised land together. Isn't that nice? That is nice. If something happens that prevents that, he must ransom her with all the means at his disposal. So the ketuva requires the groom to save his wife for any problem or obstacle that might keep them from getting to the promised land together. What does that mean? The land of Israel is the promised land, right? Mm -hmm. But the promised land is also symbolically the kingdom of heaven. Mm. So the bride and groom are covenanting to go to heaven together. And the groom is responsible for making sure that nothing prevents that. So that they're going to be faithful to the end, basically. Yes, yes. Another kind of captivity is the captivity of sin. So what if the, if the bride is you know, somehow blemished? In Israel, the bride was expected to be free 
of any sin, right? Like Mary, remember that Joseph had to consider, shall I put her away because she got pregnant? Shall I expose her publicly? And he, he being a merciful man, was going to just uh, privately deal with it, and, and, but not marry her, right? Because right. She, was, she was pregnant. Any violation of the law of Moses could disqualify her for marriage, or him for that matter. But he had a special responsibility. The groom could reject her, as Joseph considered doing with Mary, if she broke the law of Moses while they were engaged. Or he could redeem her. Now, that's a very important word, isn't it? Yeah. He could redeem her. The groom had the right to proclaim his bride as pure, even if she wasn't pure, but only if he himself had already paid the price for her sin. Wow, that sounds like uh, the sacrifice of Christ. He pays the price for sin. He does. And, and that makes the mohar, that bride payment, a token of the atonement of Christ. In the spirit of what Paul said, he commanded husbands, he said, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That's in Ephesians um, chapter 5, verse 25 and 26. So like a merciful husband, if we sin, Christ has the right to redeem us. You see how that works? I do. For his part, the Savior consecrates himself completely to the marriage covenant. Now, in the Old Testament, in Hosea chapter 2, the Lord says, quote, I will betroth thee unto me forever. In righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies, I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness. And thou shalt know the Lord. And what does it mean to know the Lord? Well, this is life eternal, to know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. To know the Lord is to have eternal life. Right. So when the Lord betrothes himself to the house of Israel, he is promising to redeem them and give them eternal life. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. So in the Lord's ketubah, he vows to sustain the bride for eternity. Um, and that's, I think, partly what is meant when he says in Matthew, um, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Uh, behold, the fowls of the air, they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. This is not just a free gift. The Lord is saying, if you're faithful and righteous, I will support you. I will sustain you for eternity. Okay. Wow. So if we keep the covenant of the ketuvah, the Lord promises to take care of us for eternity in his kingdom. That's the promise he gives to the bride. And the church is the bride. Mm-hmm. But it's also the contract that governs our own marriage ceilings. 
The couple vow to love and sustain each other for eternity. The ketuvah signifies at one moment, mm. which is the root of the word atonement. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Mm. The ketuvah signifies at one moment or oneness between the bride and the groom. Without the covenant of the ketuvah, there can be no exaltation and continuation of the lives. Only the deaths. That's in Doctrine and Covenants 132. So eternal life itself is at stake in the ketubah. Mm. Now, here's the point. In Revelation chapter 4, the Lord holds up this scroll sealed with seven seals. This is the ketubah. And in Jewish tradition, only... Now get this. This is important. Pay attention now. <laughs> okay, I'm paying attention. In Jewish tradition, only the bridegroom may unseal the ketuvah. Hold on. Let, let me understand. The sealed scroll in chapter 4 is a ketuvah. But nobody but the bridegroom has the right to break the seals. That's right. Now, in Revelation chapter 5, we see this, quote, a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? Well, the answer, no one. In heaven, on earth, or under the earth. And John says, I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open that book. Do you see why he was unhappy? Because Everything depends on the ketuvah. Everything depends on what's in that book. Right. And no one can be found to open it. Now, in our next episode, we'll find out who that bridegroom is. That can open the ketuvah. Right. The right. one who is worthy to break the seals and open the book. Uh, that's exciting. Thank you. Thank you for your time today. This, is, this has been fun. <laughs>